3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to 3CR's Renegade Economist radio show, broadcast out of Melbourne, Australia, and podcast out to many, many... Yeah, learned listeners trying to read between the lines and understand the uh, the, the framework we're talking about uh, with uh, uh, the recognition of the unnatural advantages landlords and natural monopolists have over anyone trying to run a business or earn a wage. And last night on Channel 10's The Project, a couple of our colleagues featured on a a uh, new section on the housing bubble. It's been all over the press in the last couple of weeks. As you may well know, uh, Treasury Secretary John Fraser said uh, that Sydney and Melbourne are unequivocally in a bubble. That led to some furious responses by uh, uh, Tony Abbott, our uh, sometimes Prime Minister, saying that uh, rising house prices are a good thing and that low interest rates support affordability. Now, that is a fail in economics terms. Low interest rates encourage more people to enter the market, pushing up the price of land. And from that, our wages are not able to keep up. And uh, yeah, the whole cycle continues. So this risky world of boom bust is upon us yet again. And more talk of the bubble sort of scenario continues. So let's have a listen to a couple of uh, our uh, favourite guests here on The Renegade Economist last night on Channel 10. Well, today the RBA decided to keep interest rates on hold at the record low 2%. But one of the nation's top money guys has warned that Sydney and parts of Melbourne are in a housing price bubble. But what on earth is a housing bubble? Housing bubbles 101. Super low interest rates and tax breaks for investors bring lots of buyers to the market, driving up demand for houses. This pushes prices up, attracting even more investors looking to cash in on fast-growing property values. Prices go up even more, and the cycle continues. So a problem with a spike in demand is that supply can't necessarily meet that demand immediately. It takes a while for housing to be built. Japan had a property bubble in the late 80s that got so out of hand that by the time it peaked in the early 90s, it's rumoured that the grounds of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo were worth as much as the entire state of California. Back to our own growing property bubble and those pesky investors. Their short-term buying and selling for profit continues to push up demand. And people keep borrowing and buying. Believing values will only continue to go up. That is, until the RBA lifts interest rates. While it didn't happen today, when it does, banks will clamp down on lending, which will reduce demand right around the time all those houses being built flood the market. Suddenly, prices will drop sharply and pop. The bubble bursts. You can liken it to a natural disaster. You know, when the housing bubble bursts, it's absolutely devastating to an economy. In the US, after the GFC heavily reduced property values, entire neighbourhoods of people walked away from their homes because their mortgages far exceeded the value of their house. Here, that wouldn't be an option because our debt follows us. So when the boss of the Australian Treasury says... Look at the... uh housing price bubble evidence, it's unequivocally the case in Sydney, unequivocally. You'd have to argue no one in their right mind would want prices to keep going up. I do hope that our housing prices are increasing. 
Lindsay David is the founder of Aleph Economics and author of Australia Boom to Bust. Lindsay, Treasury boss John Fraser says that we're in a housing bubble, but not everyone agrees with him. Are we really in a bubble or is this just an opinion? Uh, I'd have to agree with the Treasury Secretary. Uh, it's been very clear that uh, you know, house prices in Australia have just basically just shot through the roof. Uh, quite frankly, we're kind of looking at you know, house prices and household debt outpacing inflation, wages and GDP growth since 1996. So it's very concerning, and, uh, but it is good to see that there, are, there is someone there in government now at least mentioning the, the B word, the bubble word, which is something a lot of people here don't really want to hear. So, Lindsay, whether you own a home now or you're looking to buy one, uh, what happens when the housing bubble bursts here? Basically, we're the third most indebted nation of households in the world after the Swiss and, and the Danish. And you have 1.2 million negatively geared property investors who basically would be caught with their pants down if house prices start to fall. I heard pants down. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, Lindsay, is there any way we can safely deflate this bubble before it... Pops. You basically would need flat, uh, inflation to be flat, you need wages to double and uh, house prices to be flat. Looking at uh, the current economic conditions, that's mathematically impossible. So when the housing bubble does burst, it's going to leave uh, a pretty nasty uh, black eye to the Australian economy. Lindsay, that all sounds very concerning, but does any of it help convince Pete to pull his pants up? <laughs> They're fine where they are, thanks, Waleed. <laughs> Lindsay, if I'm getting all excited about these renovation shows and I want to buy a house, should I hold off for 12 months or so? If you want to be someone who's going to go and take a mega loan at this point in time, uh, I would strongly suggest to do your research. Just because interest rates are very low, that's when most people do get caught out when you start looking down the long run. And that was Lindsay David and, of course, Catherine Cashmore, the author of our Speculative Vacancies report on last night's The, the Project. So uh, great they're uh, getting out there amongst the mainstream and raising these issues of what a bubble is and really when uh, the demand just keeps piling on top of each other with uh, people uh, buying not based on what the rent can return but based on what expected future capital gains they're, they're uh, forecasting, uh, paying you know perhaps uh, another 60, 70 grand above what the rents deliver, uh, they uh, are enacting a bubble and that's what we've been in for Goodness me, you heard me say it nearly the whole time, the, the nearly eight years we've been on the air. So it's a huge concern. It's a great risk to the Australian economy. We were lucky post-GFC to have uh, a, uh, a very effective Treasury Secretary in Ken Henry who said, look, instead of giving the bailout money to the banks like they did in America, we have to give the money, uh, direct handouts to consumers to pump prime the economy to keep things going. So uh, the Rudd government did that, certainly. Uh, they also enacted a whole pile of policies behind the scenes, such as allowing self-managed super funds to invest in real estate and uh, sell with no capital gains tax involved. Uh, they also allowed self-managed super funds to be able to borrow against their investment portfolio, further escalating the speculative demand in the housing market. So uh, it's it's a very dicey situation and first homeowners are uh, bottoming along at some 12% of uh, all home purchases um, as per the, the average of around about 20%. So nearly half of the young people have left the market and those who are entering are entering uh, with record repayments in in 
the vicinity of some $2,000 a month. So it's demanding two income earners be uh, participating in the economy. And yeah, even with two income earners, it's so incredibly costly. So uh, I'm really um, uh, worried about uh, this focus on foreign investors. And I'm starting to feel like uh, foreign investors are going to be the blame game. But uh, we we have uh, people such as Alan Oster from the uh, National Australia Bank, the chief economist there, saying, look, there's no bubble. Uh, We have plenty of genuine demand. And then uh, I was on uh, Facebook and Twitter putting out a post, a Facebook poster about uh, Harry Trigoboff, uh, one of Australia's uh, richest, I think he was the fourth wealthiest person in the nation. Uh, the BRW Rich List found that uh, uh, property was the most dominant sector in this year's uh, top 200. Surprise, surprise. Well, Harry Trigoboff said, look, there's no bubble because there's so much demand out there. And what needs to be brought into the debate is the difference between genuine housing demand and speculative demand. And when these capital gains are some 60000 plus a year, there's no need to rent out a property. Let's just buy and hold it and flip it in the 13th month and make the easy money. That's why all these TV shows are out there uh, encouraging people to renovate, encouraging people to buy and sell, And uh, it's been great to see some recognition in the mainstream press that all these TV shows are damaging the public interest in looking at a serious debate about whether rising house prices are good, because even if uh, you do enjoy the value of your home going up, you still have to borrow a heck of a lot to buy your next property. So you're not really winning. Only the banks, only the speculators, they're the ones cleaning up. So uh, way back in show 295 in March 2010, I had Porak Lally on the show to talk about uh, the the Circle of Community was the name of that show. And he comes from uh, the School of Philosophy. He's also heavily involved in our uh, colleagues at earthsharing.ca. Uh, that's the Canadian earthsharing um, group over there. So uh, I invited Porak onto the show to have a discussion about the stewardship factor and just what we can do to return uh, society back to a more realistic uh, form of, uh, of living on this planet. And so I started off by asking Porok um, w- strategically whether we should be targeting politicians at the top to make this change or build the groundswell for what some say is a rather revolutionary change in the way society operates. So uh, let's go straight to Parak Lally's response. At this stage, I don't see it as, as an either-or. Uh, certainly, obviously, policymakers need, you know, uh, there needs to be an education process and need to understand. Um, but it's such a simple concept in many ways. However, you know, what I started to realize is the more I've considered this, to really appreciate this is is actually an, a paradigm shift in our thinking, and to appreciate, as you say, sometimes what I call community value. I think we're 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 beginning to arrive at a place in the world where we we we're, we're beginning to understand that, and I'm not just talking about it at an idealistic level, but I'm saying beginning to understand it at a visceral level 
this is a community and unless we begin to think and feel that way um, obviously we're in in a great deal of of trouble so i think it's very much both however one of the questions i have is when we uh, if we call ourselves georgists or people who have this perspective talk and think about it um, we do it sometimes at a quite an intellectual level. We have a language, and we do it at a level that I don't necessarily think people always understand. And I don't see any real change unless there is a somewhat of a groundswell. So the question is, how does that come into being? Well, how do we communicate? So I think it's it's very much both. It's very interesting. You know, I just arrived here in San Francisco this morning and talking to my friend here, I mean, George, Henry George obviously lived here at one point, but the value of a relatively small house in downtown San Francisco right now is in the millions of dollars. It's it's off the scale, with, given the, the huge impact here from uh, the economy here driven by Silicon Valley. It's just, it's off the scale. So when you were in that taxi leaving the airport, uh, perhaps this topic came up as it often does with most Georgists. It's hard to ignore. What is your sort of um, favoured elevator pitch at the moment? How do you sum up uh, this huge transition to one where we all have an equal right to a place on the earth and we can do that by uh, removing taxes off the uh, productive sector and placing it on uh, the monopolies? A couple of years ago, I was on a I was on a vacation with my wife, and uh, we were on a little island. And um, Canadians go in droves south, typically to the Caribbean in the winter time, just to for a week or two, if they can afford it, to try and escape the joys of the Canadian winter. And uh, you know, it's interesting. Each, you know, I was on a very, it was quite a nice resort and it was actually on an island and, and um, I just realized when I was there that this is, this is my, my, my now my way of trying to explain to people. Uh, every morning people go out onto the beach. Um, well, actually the, 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 the people who work on these resorts and put out these nice uh, reclining areas, etc and around the pool and at the same time every morning uh, not long after that people start to surface and uh, claim these spots beside the beach you know with their book a book or a towel and my wife and i would have these discussions about uh, whether how you know whether we or particularly i who was an early riser should go down and claim our spots for me as I have a little bit of a philosopher in them, in me, I, I always tended to sort of resist that because as you walk along the beach, what you find is that, you know, a large number of the spots are actually held out of use uh, or not being used, in fact, and just a, a pillow or a towel or, sorry, a book or something like that holding these spots. And I thought it was really a microcosm of, in a way, our mindset. So... Um, because we in this part of the world understand this concept quite well, you know, I'd say to start to explain things in terms of think of the psychology of that is that, you know, spots being held out of use is obviously clearly inefficient. 
uh, it creates acrimony among people because if there aren't enough spots, people are people who don't have any look at those who are claiming them or holding them out of use. And in very simple terms, I just say to people, what if we change the rules around that behavior on the beach? And instead of allowing everybody just to claim a spot, we started to place a value on it. And then people would choose a spot. And you can choose the, the nicest and best spot if you want, but that is the one that would have the highest rent. And so, therefore, people would start to make different decisions and value decisions. And all of a sudden, the capacity of that beach to hold people would increase because people would only hold spots as long as they were using them or would hold them for less periods of time. And then there would be other places that would be potentially free if people wanted to uh, access those spots, the less used ones that not beside the bar, not beside the ocean, not necessarily the best view. And so I just use that as an example and to say we could change we could change the rules and then we could say what are we going to do with this revenue? We, we can consider it as total revenue for a community, uh, the community of people who are uh, vacationing there. We can split it up between us, or we can uh, hold split some of it and use other to improve the local area. I thought you know it's, and I've actually ha had a couple of group discussions on this point and it's very interesting to see the psychology and how the psychology of people changes in one respect you know we're we're in opposition to each other trying to claim our little corners and in another in the in, in the respect where we change the rules and share then all of a sudden I don't feel the same way about it anymore. I feel that uh, I'm getting an equal share of the benefits that everybody enjoys. There's a sense of justice in the system. Now, you can follow the psychology of that quite far, actually. Um, now, maybe not be an, exactly an elevator speech, but I had to explain that this is the concept that location has value, and the better the location, the higher the value and that that locational value is created by demand as well as the infrastructure such as you know um, the beauty of the place and the location within that place close to shade or a bar this is what creates what we call economic rent and and it's something that's due to us all so i'm starting to to to, to work along those lines this is Say not necessarily an elevator speech. We'd now have gone about fifty stories, but uh, but I'm trying to find ways for to help people to understand what this concept of economic rent really is. You're on three CRs, Renegade Economist, this week with Porak Lally from Earthsharing Canada. Yes, our cousins at Earthsharing Canada. Check out the website earthsharing.ca. And Porak, uh, that's a nice elevator uh, ride. Sure, it might have taken 50 stories, but it helps to paint the picture of this first-come, first-served mentality we live under. And whilst people might flinch at the thought of having to pay for uh, the best uh, banana chair, we call them here in Australia, next to the uh, pool with uh, the, the bar nearby with the best view of the ocean as well, in time you come to realise that by paying just a little bit back, it ensures that uh, more people get to enjoy the best locations and by paying a little bit back you can share some of that revenue to perhaps buy everyone a few rounds of 
drinks at the uh, the poolside bar and uh, encourage a, a bit of uh, community building. So uh, that's a sort of front we'd love to see adopted throughout society. But I think one of the challenges we have as we build this groundswell uh, momentum up, we see the the sharing economy that's booming out of San Francisco with the, this peer-to-peer type uh, reviewing system that we see in all sorts of um, angles from Airbnb to Uber uh, through to something I'm involved in called helpx.net where we have uh, an amazing revolving door of travellers who come and stay at our house and provide about 20 hours of uh, uh, childcare and a bit of housework around the house in return for um, free food and board. So uh, uh, we, we look at the reviews of the people who come through and they look at, at what others, guests of ours, have, have said before as well. So that's a little bit of community building, but it's not really creating a revenue base for the future. And it just shocks me that now in, in uh, San Francisco, even Google executives earning six-figure numbers can barely afford a house there. And so uh, I just wonder how, uh, with your philosophical background, the use and abuse of the earth, the stewardship factor, um, how that is either justified or critiqued by uh, the school of philosophy. From a philosophical standpoint, the essential question is one of justice. And again, if I'm to to use uh, just a definition, uh, one that I particularly like, given in one of the talks at one point was the emperor, funnily enough, Justinian said, um, justice, he said, was the constant will to give everyone their due. Uh, And I find that very simple and very, very profound. Um, And in very simple terms, it means, I suppose for me is that Whatever I I have that is good, um, you know, I should equally want for everybody else. Um, um, or at another level, you could say what is due to the individual and what is due to the community. So lending to each that which is which is due. So to me, that's the fundamental idea, and I think that once that begins to um, find a place in people's hearts because I find the whole psychology in a way of why you know why do we why do why do we separate from each other why do we see each other as separate versus uh, versus the view of seeing each other as part of a community what is that the what is that the basis of that that's that's one interesting question but I think this the 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 the, the 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 core of it the core of it is justice we also i think in the world today in economic terms you know we talk greatly in terms of the current paradigm return on investment uh, and and we use money as a me- as a means to to measure all of these things and as soon as we veer into that arena psychologically i think we tend to veer into arena of what's mine and what's yours and when we think about money, we tend to think of it as, you know, if I've, if there's $10 there and, and I've got 10, then you don't have any. Or if you have five, I have five. It's a zero-sum game. 
and because we think of terms things in a zero sum game, we do think of things in as gain and loss. Whereas, as you've said before, I mean the idea of community is that is that everyone can can grow. Um, that there is possibility of increase for all, prosperity for everyone. One of the things that strikes me about the whole idea of land value capture, if we can make it more obvious and more visceral and more seen, is that it, it struck me one day that if, if we were actually to understand that the land we walk on has a value, and in the case of San Francisco, <laughs> a very, very high value and if we begin to understand that that value is 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 created and actually belongs to the community if that began to take hold then i think we would stewardship would naturally follow from that so in a curious way it's taking advantage of the mindset that we have today which is to count everything in terms of money or not not everything for all people but it's a common mindset translating that somehow and helping people to understand that that, that that value actually is a community value. I saw a very interesting thing in Chicago a couple of years ago where they actually had trees all up and down the boulevard and they actually had tags on these trees and they actually valued every tree for the amount of oxygen that it produced depending on its size. And I found it actually quite an eye-opener to help people make a connection back to the environment and the actual real value of a tree. Uh, I wonder if you could put signs up on the road <laughs> or in various locations and uh, similarly and say this land has a, this value, what is creating this value? So that we begin to understand it and begin to think and feel as a community because we would have a much greater level of care, I believe, for our environment if we actually understood in more concrete terms, the value that it's bringing, not from a more in a more holistic way. I love that concept. The signage would have to be digital, though, because uh, every minute it would be increasing in value, whether that landlord was awake or asleep. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> that, that sounds like a fantastic idea for a, a, a documentary. I might have to include that. Thank you, uh, Parak. Brilliant. So um, uh, the, the stewardship concept, I mean, I'm just thinking of my own history, uh, you know, growing up and then moving into a share household and along the way realizing just how poor my emotional intelligence was and my inability to really um, see how my behavior was influencing others. And, uh, you know, I, I was pretty lucky to go to a good high school, have uh, fantastic parents as role models. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a challenge for us to recognize our own impacts. And when it comes to economics, uh, you'd think that uh, some of the, the choices we make such as studying at university, uh, people now have uh, a thirty or fifty thousand dollar bounty on their head in terms of the debts they owe when they finish. But even that fifty thousand dollar debt is not pushing students to really get their head around why they're paying so much for education and how there could be a better system to fund it. How do you see that, that link between our um, emotional insights, our behavior, and, and then the, uh, the financial results of that behavior? 
again that's a to me that's an that's a very profound question you know as human beings you, you know you bring you 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 bring in that world you bring in that phrase emotional intelligence and many people i talk to these days um speak of emotional intelligence and the necessity and our success in the future uh, will be greatly dependent on our emotional intelligence so if we step back for a second and say you've got as you say, IQ, um, EQ, emotional intelligence, and some people even talk about SQ, they call it spiritual uh, quotient. But it's, it's almost like in my, in my way of thinking, if you say it, how, as human beings, how, do, how does it reflect in us? And I think the you know, IQ is, 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 is our heads, you know, it's our calculating self, you know. We think of things in terms of, you know, we could say in a very linear, logical uh, way, but we, it's, it's, it's also very exclusionary. It's like, you know, how, you know, as industry at, at times, you want to extract the maximum value out of a piece of uh, land or extract the maximum value. I saw that again today. We, we, when we build buildings, for example, uh, we see this a lot in Toronto, but it's everywhere. You know, the developer builds a building. He builds that building with a view to selling it, uh, say apartments. He's typically only responsible for that building for about a year after it's produced. So he will produce the cheapest possible building in order to maximize his sale or profitability. Then that building is taken over by people who have to care for it. It's at a different level now. And they have to care for it for the life of that building. And so building it cheaply up front often means it's very expensive to run in the long term. It's, the materials may not be as long lasting. The energy costs for the building are very high. So the builder is using IQ. <laughs> He's thinking about it in narrower terms. Whereas what we really need to, to consider is, as you say, we need to feel uh, how do we relate to other people. Um, do we feel a sense of community? And this isn't something that necessarily up to this point, I think, uh, we've learned as a matter of course. It's not part of our educational system, unfortunately. So um, it's an interesting question, I think, that we need to be able to think with our hearts. And, and that's, a, that's in, in a way, to me, is also spiritual growth. And that was where, you know, my philosophical interest was at a, at a very at a very fundamental visceral level we all share a common humanity so i think it's you know it's not just an economic question anymore it's a it's a much it's a much bigger question and i agree with you it's the, the paradigm shift is to move from what i would say our heads into our hearts you're listening to renegade economists with your host, Carl Fitzgerald.